I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Sarah, what are we drinking today? This is like a little strange, but I love it. My mother-in-law is the sweetest woman, and she has had to do the difficult task of going through her parents' belongings. Um, They died a decade ago, but... The condo is just like going up for sale and so they had to go through all their things and they had an untouched liquor cabinet. So this was like, I don't know, some 12 year scotch. But yeah, I was like, well, yeah, it doesn't go bad, right? No. And it tastes good. And it has, it's very pretty. Mine has three blackberries in it and they're like perfectly (laughs) positioned. Like I'm looking at, at it with an aerial view and it just looks so lovely. It's my play on an old fashioned. Yes. It beats the donkeys. Oh my God. <laughs> so I call her, I don't know if she has like a name. I have started just calling her voting at Fenway Girl. Like, yeah, she's voting at Fenway Girl. So you guys may have seen, but there is this like viral, it was like a news clip of, um, you know, they were interviewing people who were voting at Fenway Park, which is a really cool thing to be able to do. All, a lot of cities have opened up arenas and parks like that as early voting spaces. And so she's just you know, a Boston girl. She's got her Pats uniform on. I think she has a socks cap on. She's in it, but she's got a giant iced coffee. I wanted to vote at Fenway because we've all been cooped up inside for a little bit, and I got my donkeys, and I'm ready to vote for Joe Biden, but I wish I was voting for Bernie Sanders. But it's a team sport. Yeah. She's just explaining what she's doing, and it's the greatest thing. But it went viral because her Boston accent is so performative. Yes. But you had a great explanation for, like, yes. why it's so over the top. It is. And that's what we're right. It's like people are like, this is so aggressively Boston. Um, but, yeah, so she actually did an interview after where she explained that she does have, like, the basic accent, but that it got stronger because she worked at the, um, like, child support enforcement office. <laughs> and when she was making calls, she found that people, like, were less aggressive with her if she had her accent. On, Which basically. makes sense. Yes. Um, I'm the, not going to mess with a lady from Southie. Right? <laughs> it was funny, though, because the person who had interviewed her was like, this is a true hero's journey. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. She's great. But yes, her donkeys is like, that was, I think, kind of the, the like, the big thing that people took away from it. It's quite, um, it's a joy, it's a delight. Now, there are a lot of approaches you can take to attract people to early voting. <laughs> we took a different route. <laughs> yes. Last week, Sarah was like, Molly, I have an idea. <laughs> she texted me. She's like, is this crazy? Well, we've spoken it about. It wasn't that crazy. Yeah. Cameo <laughs> before at the service. You can personalize messages from your favorite celebrities and many of them especially the a-listers will donate that money to a worthy cause and so when we saw that rosie o'donnell had just joined the app and she was donating to a pro dems organization we were like should we and so (laughs) and it was funny because sarah kind of brought it up in a way that was like i'm not sure about this and i immediately was like absolutely we should how much is it? What are we? What's the plan? I'm Rosie O'Donnell, and this is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. I want to remind all the remarkable women of Worcester, early voting is open until October 30th. DM Sarah and Molly for locations. I and love it. It so great. It was so great. Um, and if you guys, so anyone who is newer, as a newer listener, maybe. I feel like this was, like, more of, like, our first year. Yeah. Or year and a half. We, so Rosie O'Donnell um, was dating a Worcester police officer. 
for like when we started the show and for a while after that. And so we kind of start as a joke and then we kind of became kind of serious where we were like, oh my God, like hashtag Rosie, come on, pop it. We wanted to talk to Rosie. Um, and we kind of got her. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it's a start. And we'll talk more about the relationship arc at the end with the Worcester cop. Yeah. But we wanted to like go back in history and talk about oh. her relevance in terms of politics because as a figure, as a talk show host and an actress, she has made quite the space for herself as it pertains to our commander in chief. Oh my goodness, yes. And it started like I think earlier than people realize. Yeah. Right. Like I always just thought I remember from like the the aughts or whatever back and forth. Well, it starts and I didn't know this until I read a piece in Vanity Fair, but in 1993, Rosie is actually a guest at Donald Trump's wedding to Marla Maples at the Plaza Hotel. Super fancy, but Rosie's a guest because she's Marla's friend. And this is his second marriage. Yeah. The woman that he left his first wife, Ivana, for. So who I assume is Ivanka's mom. She is the mother of all of his kids except for, oh no, sorry, the, the oldest three. Gotcha. Um, yes. And so like, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka's mother was Ivana. Marla Maples is the mother of Tiffany. Ah, yes. Poor Marla Maples. No, I don't even want to say poor, but, you know, she's cheated upon <laughs> by the the commander-in-chief. I don't even like saying his name. The current president. By Ivanka's dad. <laughs> the current president. Not even... The current yeah. president. Yeah, yeah. And Rosie's pissed. So she says, no, you can't come on the Rosie O'Donnell show. She refuses to book Donald that's Trump. I think that you are a bad guy. And that's when they really start to get into this feud because he has such a huge ego that he cannot stand that he's been blackballed from this daytime television show. Right, like a daytime talk show where, like, this wonderful woman, like, blasts pooch balls into the audience. And he's like, how dare you? <laughs> exactly. Bye. And so for a little bit of background, Rosie has this grudge. She's heard around town. A lot of people are afraid, including Marla Maples, to speak out against Donald Trump because they're afraid he'll hit you with a lawsuit or financially ruin you. But Very litigious. She is not afraid to call him dumb, to say his parents didn't like him, to say that there's some sort of abuse allegation between he and his son. He's believed to have punched his son when he went to visit him at college. Yep. Like, she's not shy about throwing around some accusations and that obviously puts them on edge as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's like her personality, right? Like it's very in line with what we know about Rosie's like, she is an outspoken person and she's loud, like physically loud, but also just like, you know, she speaks up. I think it's so funny that she mentioned that his parents didn't like him because that's something that people still use where they're like, your dad hated you. <laughs> To be very clear, his dad was also a terrible, terrible person, extraordinarily racist, one of the like, like a, like a hero of the redlining movement, which mm -hmm. would not allow properties or whatever to be rented out to black folks, like just an awful guy. <laughs> so it runs. So I think that's part of where it comes from for him, right? Where it's like, it runs deep where it's like, his dad didn't like him, but he still wants to be his father. Right. Well, and I don't want to dwell too much on yes. him because I feel like we're, we're so saturated with him. Ugh. But I do think about that a lot. Like, what's worse? His father, who made a fortune by doing very unlawful things, mm -hmm. or him, who has, like, become a complete and utter failure, but wielded his power to do... Be the... Become the president of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But, yes. Yeah, so, she... I love that she was one of the people that who like early on before we even kind of 
before he came into even a more national purview, I think, like, was she was like, dude, this guy sucks. Yeah, because I got <laughs> him as a character back then. Sure. As the host of The Apprentice. Yep. I knew who he was. I used to, like, the first, like, two or three seasons of The Apprentice, like, I watched and, and enjoyed. <laughs> and I must have been a kid, you know, like, yep. maybe middle school yep. for me. Yep. But in 2006 is when <laughs> this feud goes to a whole new level, and it's because of the Miss USA pageant. Now, what is Trump's role in the Miss USA pageant? I think that he owns it. Like, he owns the company that is Miss USA, which I think is so funny because I I used to, like, really like watching pageants as a kid. I think a lot of kids do, right? Me like, too, I did. And I would be like, these are my favorites. Like, <laughs> um, And I didn't realize that there was a difference between Miss USA and Miss America also, like, until I was a little older. And yes, so he's like the owner of like the Miss USA Corporation. I don't even know what it is. I'm making <laughs> an assumption here, but can we go ahead and say like Miss America is much more prestigious than Miss USA? I think it's more serious. Yeah, I think it's something that is taken less as a entertainment piece for sure. That makes sense to me. And so the reigning champion of 2006 is this girl, Tara Connor. She's underage. She's got a Coke problem. She's seen in the streets of Las Vegas, like high out of her mind, making out with a, a girl. And this becomes a huge story, right? Because that's not really on brand with Donald Trump in some respects, but in other respects, it's so on brand. Right. I think it's very on brand with for him personally, but like from the perspective of professional side or with Miss USA. Wholesome pageant girl. Yes, absolutely. So he publicly comes out like he's the savior and he <laughs> forgives her and says she obviously, you know, she has a problem. She can continue to be Miss USA. We're going to get her the help that she needs. And this just disgusts Rosie knowing on the inside how this man treated his ex-wife. And so Rosie is totally outraged. She thinks that he's using her drug problem this woman, Miss USA, Tara Connor's drug problem in order to promote himself. Which I think knowing what we know is a fair assessment of that situation, right? Like, I feel like it's like so much of this we can look back on and be like, wow, yeah, that is what was happening. <laughs> that day, Rosie gets on The View and she says, like, who is he to be the arbiter of justice, you know? And she talks about, again, his privilege, his bankruptcies, his various misdealings, but this time on national television. She's not just chatting it up around town. Absolutely. Or, like, people aren't hearing rumors, like, oh, she won't have him on, let him on the show for whatever reason. I had actually, like, totally forgot about this chapter, which is so funny. I had one of those, like, flashbulb memories where, like, I read the name and I read the situation of, like, the, this girl from Miss USA and I was like, whoa, Tara Connor. Yeah. Um, but that's good to point out, too, is, like, I feel like when Rosie got on The View was sort of a turning point, right? Like, she had her show, which was very lighthearted and very fun. And it was, like, I would say kid-friendly, too. Yeah, yeah. And then she, as an outspoken person and as someone who is an entertainer, um, they asked her to come on The View just to be a um, one of the co-hosts. So I think that once she got on there and had more of a plat like a platform speak politically or to speak her mind. Yeah, she's candid. It's pretty yes. unscripted. Yeah. So she did have to clear it with the producer how she was going to approach this. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. Like the guy's a caricature. And so she does. She imitates him. And she calls him a snake oil salesman on national television. And this really, really <laughs> hits him in a bad place, right? He's super sensitive to it. And funny enough, the interview after she does this whole shtick on Donald Trump, who do you think it is? 
I don't know. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yes. So this epic day between Rosie and (laughs) Donald. So weird. Who's the the guest? Senator Clinton, right? At the time. That's insane. Donald Trump loses his shit. And he sends out all of these tweets that are like, she's a real loser. She's a woman out of control. I look forward to taking lots of money from my nice, fat, little Rosie. I know. I didn't even like the body. My jaw jaw dropped. Yes. So I hate that. Um, Yeah. And Rosie is like living a normal life. And I think about this when it comes to celebrities a lot. Like maybe they get engaged so quickly because it's hard to Mm -hmm. gauge commitment when you have a clear power differential with your partner. That must be hard. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She's been in various serious relationships. Yes, has Donald Trump. In 2011, she gets engaged and Donald Trump sends out a tweet. Not congratulatory. It says, I feel sorry for Rosie's new partner in love whose parents are devastated at the thought of their daughter being with Rosie, a true loser. I just don't even know. I mean, outside of the obvious stuff is like, how do you like just decide that someone is a loser who like has a successful film acting career and had a talk show and is the like somewhat beloved, at least by certain populations, like co-host of this like very widely watched show where like women speak their minds, a loser. My husband always talks about how I have a list. He'll be like, mm-hmm. you have certain things on your list that happened four years ago, and you'll bring them up in an argument as, like, ammo. And I say, well, those must have been things that really hurt my ego. And for Donald Trump, I think he's got a list. And he's like, this woman would not let me on the Rosie O'Donnell talk show. I am going to destroy her. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I mean, we can see that now. I just – I know I have said – I kind of said this earlier, but, like, Looking at the behavior of this person who, like, we kind of looked at, like, Sarah and I were just saying, as a character and as sort of, like, a larger-than-life, like, haha, like, whatever. Looking at his behavior starting, and, like, I think there's stories in the 80s and 90s, too, like, with clearer eyes and, like, of how he is acting or his behavior now as the president is like really a trip because it just all comes more into focus, I think, right? Yeah, it gives me a clearer picture of what's real and what is imagined as I look at him as a political figure. Sure. Because part of me is like, okay, is he still acting? Like he's an entertainer. Well, now he's in this very serious role. So looking at this stuff kind of helps me to realize that, no, he's actually quite petty. He just like is this person. Totally. So the random digs continue. 2012, um, Cher insults Mitt Romney. And Trump just out of the blue, like this is totally unrelated to Rosie. Trump tweets, Cher attacked Mitt Romney. She's an average talent who is out of touch with reality. Just like Rosie O'Donnell, a total loser. Like, oh my gosh. Totally unconnected. I don't even disconnected. know. Right. Which, first of all, calling Cher <laughs> an average talent is a whole issue of, in itself, right? Like, we, I'm not even going to address that. You guys all know how insane that is. That's so asinine. Um, <laughs> that is like, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like the fact that, and that's what, so like, she probably would have been just as well to leave it alone, right? Like. He, but he tends to just keep bringing it back. And that's why I think like, you're so right about the list, right? Where he's just like, how can I rope this person back in? And I think he has like a cast of characters that he'll keep being like loser, whoever, right? Right. I also just really quickly, most of the time when Cher says or tweets things, (laughs) they are like some, they're, they're often very earnest and super sincere. And like, sometimes she does tweet like, 
cool radical ideas, but they're never like mean. You know what I mean? So like the fact that he even said that she attacked Mitt Romney says that to me that he felt like for some reason it was an attack on him. Whatever Cher said, it sounds like he thought was attacking him for some reason because she doesn't really attack, I wouldn't call it. Yeah, I don't think of Cher as a polarizing figure. No, and like, anyways, but I do think like any time he can, he's like, how do I... Mm-hmm. How do I throw her into the the ring again? Which is why it did kind of surprise everyone a few months after that Mitt Romney tweet and make everyone think, okay, maybe this is like a publicity stunt between the two of them. Maybe mm-hmm. this is orchestrated. Yep. In 2012, Rosie has a heart attack. And that's an awful thing. And so Donald Trump actually tweets, Rosie, get better fast. I'm starting to miss you. And she responds. She says, well, thank you, Donald. I must admit your post was a bit of a shock, dot, dot, dot are you trying to kill me? Yeah. I <laughs> And then she writes like XOXO. It's funny because I totally forgot that Rosie had a heart attack. Um, but then like I read that tweet and I remembered it so vividly. Um, the like, the, are you trying to kill me? The little line at the end. Um, but I think that's what he does, right? Is that he tries to be like, I'm actually um, really a good person. Like I actually, I actually only say these really awful things about people because I care about them. And like when, that's I, what he does. when I read his tweet, I think, oh, maybe it was between them all along and they're, um, I don't know what, we, you're, they're PR agents. Right, or just like doing whatever. They're Shauna's yeah. from Entourage. <laughs> but, but then I read her response as utterly surprised. Like, right. this is a real fight between the right, two of them. She's, she's like, shocked by his compassion, his tiny bit of compassion. Yeah, like, what is the deal with this? Absolutely. Now... It's at that point we realize that, well, maybe he was compassionate because he was trying to position himself to run for president. Mm. Because in 2016, he becomes one of the front runners. And in the debate hosted by Fox News, moderator Megyn Kelly asks him about the language he's been using he, uh, to talk about women specifically, mm-hmm. like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, disgusting animals. These are the names he's calling women publicly. And he responds by saying, only Rosie O'Donnell. Everyone gasps. Everyone laughs. Everyone is appalled. You Mm -hmm. know, it's just like there's no decorum. Right. And it's also another case of him just like, why are you bringing this up right now? It's so crazy. Um, And I will say, too, like between I would say right around the time of like a Mitt Romney situation and then 2016, Um, He was kind of at the forefront of the birther movement also, which was where people were accusing Barack Obama of like either forging or, you know, whatever his birth certificate. He wasn't actually born in the USA, blah, blah, blah. You know, that whole racist kerfuffle. Part of his positioning, I think, too, is where he brought that in. And then as time went on, he sort of was aligning himself more and more closely with the conservative movement. It is just like, why... Yeah, why? What does this have to do with Rosie O'Donnell? You're trying to position yourself as the most powerful person in the world, and you want to bring it back to this feud about not going on a daytime talk show? It's so crazy. And so, poor Rosie. This is when I start to feel like she she really is a sympathetic figure. Yes. Because she tweets out during this debate after he makes a remark about her, try explaining that to your two kids. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And it's just, it's sad. Like, imagine, you know? Yeah oh yeah, this person just has decided to hate me. And then using me and my life and my experiences and my like like, physical features or whatever to basically put down all women, 
whatever his attitude is towards this one person, it reads bigger than that, right? Right. And he shockingly moves forward as the Republican candidate, as we all know. He's in another debate with Hillary in Mm -hmm. September, and she then asks him about his attitude toward women. And he responds, Hillary is hitting me with some tremendous commercials, which I assume – I had to read that twice, but I assume he means like her campaign ads, her negative ads. Yes, yep. Some of it, I said, in entertainment. So he makes it sound like some of the nasty things he said about women were an act for The Apprentice. Right, which is like what people read them as, which doesn't make them okay, but – Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, which is, I think, was his whole thing, right? And then he said, some of it was said to somebody who has been very vicious to me, Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> I said very tough things to her, and I think everybody would agree she deserves it, and nobody feels sorry for her. In a presidential debate. It's so weird. Oh, my God. I was just talking about this the other day with my therapist about how, like, everything is just really weird. Mm-hmm. And, like, that I feel like is a really good, like, it's like a, a touchstone of just, like, the weirdness of everything right now, right? Uh, sorry, I'm fixated on his use of the word tremendous to describe every single thing, no matter what it is. Um, which I wish people would use that word more to, correctly, but he does it all the time. But, like, yes, exactly. And it's, like, bringing it back to, like, what is his fixation here? It, it's, a, it's obsessive. It's like the kid that didn't get invited to the birthday party. Yeah. And like, this is a person like you were just saying who, you know, is a public figure, is a person, but who also like has a family, who has a real life mm-hmm. um, and who has had like her own stuff and who also just like is outspoken. Yes. And has definitely said things about him. Maybe that were correct or accurate but also doesn't deserve to be like brought up in like totally random situations. And I don't want to exonerate Rosie completely because I mean, she's a human. (laughs) I will. So let's talk about, you know, she was outwardly critical of Donald Trump's romantic relationships. So let's talk a little bit about her romantic relationships. She she was married to Kelly Carpenter from 04 to 07. I remember her. I can see her face in my head. She had really weird, um, like highlights in her head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was then married to Michelle Rounds from 2012 mm. to 2016. They have four children together. And when they separated, Michelle then committed suicide. Yeah, it was September like one or two years later, right? Yeah. That and so is this is right. really difficult. So if we think that that debate where she was called out as all these terrible, terrible things right. to call a woman in front of the entire nation, September 2016. She's going through a, a bad breakup with her long-term partner, and then her partner commits suicide in September 2017. Yeah. And I do always wonder, I don't know, this is still, like, weird and personal and probably not my place, but, like, anytime that happens where there's, like, a person who has, like, a romantic partner who then happens to, like, you, obviously, I would you would never blame that person, but... Right. And when I said exonerate, I was not referring... Yeah. To the suicide. Right. But it is just like, you have to wonder what was happening surrounding that person at the time. Not that it has to do anything with their partner, but just like, obviously, something was really difficult. Yeah. So that's a reminder. I hope you're all checking in with your mental health. Yes. This is a weird, terrible, I keep saying terrible now. Like, it is terrible. This is a, a difficult time for everybody. Yeah. So we know Molly and I started this podcast in 2018, July. Yep. 
and they were together. And by they, I mean Rosie O'Donnell and this cop from Worcester. <laughs> and I'm trying to be cognizant of the fact that these are real people who live oh, in our course. community. Yeah. But the story that I had heard was that the the cop, we'll just call her, had always yeah. loved Rosie. Mm-hmm. Big fan girl. And we've talked about it before. Like it's yeah. not something that's like new to the her longtime partner, the cop's longtime partner is a Worcester woman. And as a gift for her, gave her this trip to go see Rosie live. And doesn't Rosie pick the cop out of the crowd and they really hit it off. <laughs> and so ultimately the cop leaves her longtime partner, a Worcester woman, to be with Rosie O'Donnell. Which is so like crazy for the Worcester community, I think is like what my takeaway was, right? Where yeah. it's like that story, like whatever happened with those people personally, we, you know, like it's a story we've told before and we've heard before, but like for us and for, I think for a lot of people, we were just like, people were seeing Rosie like funky Murphy's. It was so crazy. I know. Well, she's been seen around town mm-hmm. for sure. And yeah. we're all like a buzz. Right. And then we find out that the cop is going to award shows and we're like, well, with the what? Worcester woman on the red carpet. Yeah. How cool. It was thrilling. Rosie starts filming this show in Boston. Smilf. Smilf. Southie. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. 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 Yes. Like, what is it called? Which I really enjoyed, too. Yes. Then, although we did talk about lots of issues that they had on set. Yes. But But Rosie did come out. So the woman who had created it and started it and written it, Frankie Shaw, ran into some issues. But Rosie came out, like, really in support of her and was like, I had a great experience, which doesn't always mean that, like, everyone who worked there did. But I do think she was trying to, like, have her back as a woman who, like, created and produced the show, right? Yeah. And someone – I was about to call her an A-list celebrity. I don't know that Rosie is an A-list celebrity, but she's certainly a relevant celebrity. Yes. And I think that Rosie – I think that you could argue that her, like, level of fame is very high. Like, her name recognition is high. Yes. Even if it's, like, her work is not as widely seen, maybe, as it was, right? Right. <laughs> her filmography, right? Yes. So – we get the bad news from, I don't remember, it was like People Magazine it was or devastating. something. Breaks that their engagement has been called off. I think that like Joy sent it to us or something. Mm-hmm. Or maybe like Veronica. I want to credit whoever it was. Someone sent it to me. I remember I didn't hear on my own. But let's was- talk about this. So if we look at the timeline, mm-hmm. she gets dragged in a presidential debate. Mm-hmm. One year later, her longtime partner and the mother of her children kills herself. Yeah. She pretty quickly ends up in a relationship with this Worcester woman yeah. who she's pulled out of the crowd. And then, you know, that breaks up. Fizzles so out. Yeah. I hope that now is the time for you, Rosie. <laughs> I know we're projecting, but you're a public figure. To come on pop it. To come on pop it. No, no. To take care of herself and her kids. Oh, yeah. You know? Yes. I do think too. Well, I think it was also like her, her kids who are adults, their mother is her first wife. And then Dakota, who's the young girl, her her like Rosie's partner who had committed mm-hmm. suicide, that was um, like she was Dakota's mother. And that's, I think, what makes it even sad. Well, I mean, it's yeah. obviously really sad, but like her daughter was really young. She's like eight years old, I think, at that time. And that's like incredibly difficult. But I think, yeah, I think that her adult children were the children of Kelly. You are absolutely correct. The reason that I know this is that because when I used to watch the Rosie O'Donnell show as a child with my grandmother, (laughs) her kids are like, like Parker and Chelsea, I think are the oldest. 
Does that sound right? Yep. Parker um, 24, Chelsea 22. Blake. Blake 19. <laughs> so I remember when Vivian, she. Vivian. Vivian. Yeah. Vivian. 16. I remember when she adopted all these kids. Like I have memories of sitting on my couch with my grandmother. She was like, I just brought home my son, Blake. Like, I'm so excited. I remember when Blake came home and I remember my grandmother being like, ah, I don't like that name. <laughs> Which was the thing my grandmother was always saying. Ah. I guess that plays into the relevance is when you feel like you grew up with somebody. I did. I felt connected. Like, I remember her, like, showing pictures of Parker, who was only, like, a few years younger than me. And I'd be like, whoa, like, Rosie's kid, you know? And so I remember that, like, vividly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so funny. So we used to talk a lot about Rosie. We would call it the Rosie Report. I yes. think we even had a song like Rosie, 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 Rosie. Just, It was basically us just saying her name. I think Jim Athai will be like really excited that we brought back the Rosie song because he loves the Rosie song. Yes. Well, we wanted to kind of not close the book on Rosie, but give her the time that she deserves because man, has she shaped a presidency somehow, you know, she embodies... Yeah. She showed us very early on how Donald Trump treats people. Yeah. That's so interesting. Someone could write an academic paper about this, I feel. I think so. <laughs> I always come up with ideas for things that I think would make a good academic paper. But had we been able to project his treatment of public figures like Rosie out in the open mm -hmm. on what would happen to our country, I think we all would have had a more accurate picture of what the future held back For sure. in 2016. Yeah. And I mean, I think some people did. Like, I do think, like, I remember really thinking that the world was literally going to end like a week later. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think people had like sort of a doomsday idea, but I think like, as we did, kind of discussed and went through like bit by bit, it's like the actual points of the way that he behaves are so like repetitive it's such a pattern mm -hmm. and it all comes back to him being insecure which is a terrible excuse for bad behavior when yeah. you reach a certain level of power yes <laughs> well i want to talk about another worcester individual historically abby hoffman oh yeah because aaron sorkin came out with a new film the chicago seven dropped on netflix I really enjoyed it. Some people thought I like read some commentary that said yeah. this should have just been a documentary. I ate it up. Yes. I think that's the thing with him is that, so this is only his second film as a director. Mm -hmm. um, the other one was Molly's game, which is also super entertaining. He's just, he's very good, especially when he writes films at like big ensembles, right? Like he will write like a billion characters and they all have a ton to say. Yeah. And they're usually like kind of, they, they're like sensational in a way, right? Like I feel like a lot of his characters are sort of like, Big, larger than life. Let's give a little, uh, again, filmography. We got Molly's Game, Social Network, yep. he wrote A Few Good West Men. West Wing, A Few Good Men, a few good men Sports is, Night. Yes. The um, Newsroom, which a lot of people don't like, but I really like. I hate the Newsroom, I but know, I, I watched the it. entire thing and like am also obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah. But right, he's got, he's a big deal. As a writer, really, really in particular. But yeah, so this is like only his second film as a director. And so I think that's part of it, right? It's like, you're still finding your footing. Um, I read a couple of reviews that were sort of interesting that were like, it's super entertaining, but it's also like, is it a movie? <laughs> Which I thought was like such an interesting question. I haven't watched it yet, full disclosure, but I just found that to be like such a um, funny way to ask, to like ask about a film or with query, I guess. My high school English teacher, Matt Robert, he would always talk about Abby Hoffman and how Abby Hoffman loved to like get away and go into nature on Newton Hill in Worcester. 
Uh, and I always thought that was so cool because I would go running on Newton Hill every day. And so I kind of like tucked it in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And whenever I see a reference to Abby Hoffman in the crossword puzzle or whatever, I'm like, yes. hey, that's our Worcester guy. Yep. But after the movie, the Chicago 7, I was like, oh, I should look up where he grew up, where like he lived. Where he, like, actually, like, in Worcester, right? Yeah. And it was the same block that my dad lived on for 20 years. He, My dad moved in in 1992, and Abby Hoffman, unfortunately, committed suicide in 1989. But there's a really neat story that, you know, when he had his funeral at Temple Emanuel, which is now part of Worcester State. Mm-hmm. Pete Seeger and 500 mourners showed up at the mom's house on Ruth Street in Worcester. And Seeger led a march from Ruth Street to Temple Emanuel and played songs at the front of the march. Oh my gosh. I'm just imagining Abby Hoffman playing disc golf <laughs> on New England <laughs> Hill. That was like when you said that, I was like, ah. Um, I do think, though, that is this particular movie. I'm really glad that it's telling this story because I think that. Like, people talk about Abby Hoffman, especially, like, you know, in Worcester. And we know who he is, but I don't think people realize, like, what a impactful figure he was in the counterculture movement. He was huge. He invented something. Like, he invented, like, the the yips. Yeah, the yippies. Yeah, the yippies. Like, it's a whole thing. Like, and people in, like, the 60s were, like, afraid of him. Like, yeah. for him and all his buddies to, like, show up. Like, he was really a big, big deal. So the yippies were, like, radical hippies. Yes, and they had the – it's an acronym, and I can't remember what the exact thing is. But, right, exactly. It was, like, beyond even – the youth – the youth – um youth something. The Y stands for youth. I, I know that. I can look it up. But, but he was also a comedian. He moonlighted as a comedian. And that really shines through in the film where he's constantly making jokes and you feel like he's giving these monologues that he could deliver up on a stage. Yeah, I feel like he's got sort of um, um a Lenny Bruce vibe. Youth. International party. Yeah, the yips. Yeah, the yippies. If you guys know Lenny Bruce, he was the one who was arrested for... Uh, he was arrested for... Being, he said bad words. What was he arrested for? Where in public? Obscenity. Obscenity, yeah. I feel like he had like a Lenny Bruce vibe where he was sort of like very over the top and would like say things just to sort of needle people, right? Like he would say things, he would like do things just to mess with people, absolutely. And his um, buddy, who was played by Jeremy Strong. Yes. Ruben. Ruben, yes. Um, was the same way. Oh my God, Jeremy Strong. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about how much From we love Jeremy Strong for again. three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the charge of obscenity because it seems so antiquated, right? That anyone could get. I mean, and he was mm-hmm. arrested in 1964, but yep. you could get arrested for having like really crass comedy, for, like saying the f word on stage. Oh, yeah. So that made me think of a current event in our fair yeah. city assumption oh my goodness speaking of things that are a little antiquated can you so, give me like a short recap i mostly saw it explode on twitter yes essentially what happened is assumption college which is a catholic they're catholic, catholic right yeah yes catholic oh my god so they sent out a i believe it was a letter to current students it may have gone to alumni as well it's like in the guise of being like about the election this year and like advising students like spiritually on like what choice they should make when they vote but what kind of happens in this letter is it's really interesting to read because at some points they're like we know that there are many things that are like morally wrong and it talks about like destroying the environment and the death penalty and you're like yeah cool and then it takes a turn and it talks about like not preventing or not um, 
uh, upholding the sanctity of marriage and the true meaning of marriage. And it talks about... Does that mean like gay marriage? Does that mean like infidelity? Yes. Anytime you hear any person who is like speaking in a religious tone about marriage or like traditional marriage or the sanctity of marriage or what marriage actually means or is, they are telling you that that... They believe that like gay marriage or like any kind of marriage that falls under the LGBTQ umbrella is wrong. So which is right. Exactly. (laughs) So like they came out with this letter. um, They also and so they're saying like when you go to the polls, you should think about these things. So there's a big deal essentially made about that part of it um, because there are students who go to Assumption or who have gone to Assumption who are in the LGBTQ community which is like, of course, like every college has that. And it's also like you're in Worcester, you're in Massachusetts. Right. So, oh. You know, you don't have to put that in a public document, first of all. But secondly. Or how dumb are you to put it in exactly. a public document? Yes. Know? And so um, a lot of folks are, were upset. There is a different note in this document that talks about killing babies. And they use, they almost use, I think it's like unjustified murder of fetuses or something like they use some insane um (laughs) phrase to describe abortion and i'm sure that there are plenty i'm sure that there is just like 35 years no kidding yeah but also (laughs) like i feel positive that there are students who do go or have gone to assumption who have had abortions because maybe they needed them or wanted them and so it's just a it was just very alienating in many ways Mm -hmm. um under the guise of being like a spiritual guide for this and so for a school that's in dire financial straits and is looking (laughs) to become a university and has declining enrollment that seems like a really stupid thing to do it also seems like a stupid thing to do to the community of people who like do attend or have attended assumption it was very upsetting and like kind of odd like kind of weird frankly like Sort of out of left field. Like, you don't even need to tell students how to vote, first of all. All right, I'm workshopping this here. Here's what I think. Holy Cross, obviously, is an old, established, top-tier Jesuit university. Yes. And then you've got this smaller Catholic school four miles away. Mm -hmm. And they always feel like the little sister. Sure. And so this is them asserting themselves being like, we are more Catholic than you. Absolutely. That is like a very possible motivation (laughs) That is a very possible motivation for this, right? And I mean, like, I think right now, obviously, things are, like, extraordinarily fraught, right? Like, things are read in ways that um, are more extreme maybe than they are. Mm -hmm. But I think that's within good – with good reason, right? Like, because of just, like, the way that things are going and people are – people are upset and scared and having a hard time. And so I think it's just, like, one more thing, right, that these marginalized communities have to deal with. I guess that's kind of it, right? Right. Where it's just, like, why would you – you don't need to say this. Okay, moving on. Yes. Last thing I wanted to mention. This morning, my article came out about three options for restaurants this winter. Ooh. I've had, like, a little pushback on it, but (laughs) – Ooh. I know. Uh, The first one is those igloos. (laughs) We've yes. seen them at Lot 50, 50 for years. Um, they just got them last year at the beer garden. But if you're going with someone in your, let's say, quarantine pod, like someone that you've been exclusively seeing, sure, I think that's okay. There's less airflow, but they can clean them in between. And that's a safe way to go with people yes. that you've already been spending a lot of time with. Um, that was I, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned the, like the airing out. Cause that was my concern was mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, those igloos are, were fun. like, I went to them once last year. It was, we had fun. 
it was kind of cool. But at the same time, it's like, are you going to sit there for, you know, 75 minutes or whatever, yeah. like the time block is that you get. And then are they going to have someone come in? Like who was there before you? Because we know now that this is like airborne. There are droplets everywhere. Um, and in a space like that, that is a enclosed, but B also like is heated inside. Like it's just, mm-hmm. there's a lot to think about. So I was thinking like, okay, yes, you definitely can sanitize them between reservations, but who has to do the sanitizing? You know, and also, right, like, and do they have to wear like a hazmat suit? Yeah, because I feel like a mask in that takes away from the vibe. Necessarily gonna, yeah. I just feel like condensation. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so that's one option. It seems immediately like a good idea, and then you think more about it, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. If it was just me and my husband, I'd feel totally cool if I knew they sanitized it. If it's, you know what I mean? See, my That's thing isn't I, even the sanitation. It would have to be like, are you taking an hour in between? Yeah, to that really you know air I mean? it out. Like, and that, I think, is a challenge. Right. Rest, you can't, restaurants can't really operate that way. So I guess we'll wait and see with that. That's option one. Mm-hmm. And this is like on a national scale. Eater's written about it. But these are the three major paths. Yep. The second one is expensive. But for large volume restaurants like the Boynton, sure. they're investing in these giant propane heaters so that you can keep eating outside you know under what? a tent with open air. That'd be fun. Yeah. I it could mean, be an adventure. It's <laughs> expensive, but it does the job. It's definitely warm. It's not necessarily energy efficient. Yeah. But and it's an investment too where like you might have to eat it next year if we're post pandemic. Right. And it's not gonna be every restaurant that is going to be capable of or willing to make that choice and it's not worth it if you have low capacity yeah whereas right. like the boy and i think can safely expect people to keep and rolling a huge space in the parking yep. lot yeah yeah okay and then the third option is pivoting to a prepared foods model so like a market model which is what dead horse is doing yeah um they just didn't kind of like roll that out yeah. today there's a new market in Stowe it's that's cool. doing it yeah and the idea is like you have this classically trained chef who can still have fun and experiment and use seasonal ingredients and then in the case of dead horse it's kind of cool because we know julia is a natural wine expert so she's gonna launch a wine shop and they also are bottling um cocktails yeah that's so then cool. sean can get creative too so it's kind of like they're all getting to play their own roles and like mm-hmm. flesh out these ideas that maybe they had but it came at the expense of all their service Oh, yeah. And that's like extremely hard choice, I think, for the service industry right now is because I think people, I don't know, like restaurants, at least in maybe in Worcester, I don't know, just like truly do like care about the people who work there. Restaurants want to employ these people. They want to be able to provide them with income. And that is, it's like a difficult choice because you can either fold, right? Mm-hmm. And Or I don't know. It's just, it's impossible. And so that was painful to talk to them because I, I mean, it's no secret, right? I love those three people very much. They're awesome. Julia and Sean and Jared, but they had to let their staff go. And I can just tell that that broke their hearts. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Like, especially knowing them, that would be just like the worst Right. But it was like you hang on to people and then you don't have a viable option for them. That's even worse because then you're like holding them back. You need to. Right. Yeah. So at least they're like now they can collect unemployment. They can find a new job. They've got the support network they've built. But yeah, I think that's a hard decision. Yeah. I think that this winter, I think on all fronts, not just in like the hospitality industry is going to be really tough. I think people are kind of thinking now too, like I read an article the other day that was like, Every single school should be ready to open full time, like for the next semester or trimester or whatever you do. And I was like, yeah, maybe if it was June, like 
it's going to be winter. It's going to be harder. It's going to be worse. And it is, there are, there is evidence. I mean, like I'm working in the hybrid model right now and we really are not experiencing super breakouts and super, um, super spreading events and stuff, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And so maybe like the schools aren't necessarily like, or kids are not necessarily the vectors that we maybe were afraid that they might be, but when weather gets colder and people are inside more and people are sick more easily, it just, it gets worse. And every winter, if you have ever worked in any kind of school, whatever level you're at, people get sick all the time. Um, and so it might even get to a point where like, even if we're all at school, if people have colds, they're going to have to be out for however long. Two right. Weeks, yeah. yeah. So the whole thing is just, it's, I'm glad that I am not in an administrative or decision-making place, I guess is like my point. Um, I think it's just going to be hard for a lot of different communities and a lot of different professions, I guess, or a lot of different fields. Oh, and this is, all right, my final point, a little (laughs) unrelated, but my friend Gina Pearl Fletcher, who someday we will snag when she's done with finals (laughs) um, to talk about architecture, but she posted something that said like, we need to pay teachers more. I can't believe we're paying superintendents $350,000. And I wrote to her like, oh my God, that's not nearly enough. The decisions those people are making right now, we can't find quality superintendents. And it's because (laughs) they've got to be finance directors, attorneys, curriculum specialists. They have to be like a high level professional in four different fields. It's so crazy to me that some cities have superintendents who are qualified for their positions. Like, that's so crazy to think about that. Like, some cities have people who actually are qualified. A lot of cities or communities with resources have deputy deputy superintendents who can help, like, take on some of that work. Absolutely. It is. It is, like, right. It's not, like, a single person making um, down the line. It's tough, Here is what Gina and I were talking about is the hardest position to hang on to is the finance director because those people make so much more money in the private sector. So you go through them a lot. Mm -hmm. Worcester is extremely lucky to have Brian Allen, although I think he's retiring, where to find somebody quality that will do that job for, say, $120,000 when they could be just making infinitely more. Like $600,000. And they have like... Or whatever, yeah. So much liability. It's tough. And so what happens is the superintendent inevitably ends up becoming the interim finance person every, yes. and screwing up because they didn't go to, they don't have an MBA. You no know? kidding. They some of like them a don't really even teacher. have, um, <laughs> some of them don't even have degrees beyond. Um, <laughs> I do want to say though, that one statistic that I did think was interesting from that um, piece that Gina posted was like, as I looked at it a little more and I didn't realize there are certain districts where the superintendent is literally making in a month what some teachers are making in a year. Right. And, and then, that is, startling. <laughs> That's what I said too. I was like, I don't disagree with this. I just think there needs to be a restructuring. And she was like, absolutely. We sure, right. Like it's an yeah. across the board situation, but oh my God. But yeah. I don't <laughs> want people to be alarmed by that and think that superintendents are overpaid. They are getting paid the right amount, if not right. underpaid. It's, I it's mean, the, it's the fact that everyone else needs to be the discrepancy. Yeah. It. Right. But I don't think by any means that superintendents of public school districts, especially large ones, are overpaid. I think sure. you'll attract quality candidates if you pay them enough. Yeah. And I mean, that's in like, okay, yeah, exactly. Let's use that principle for teachers too. Everywhere, yes. everywhere in the country. Yeah. <laughs> like not just wherever. It is. It's just going to be, I think that this is, um, 
as good a time as any for communities to really be coming together. I do want to shout out the um, the Worcester Free Fridge, which is hopefully going to find a power source soon. I've just been, I am not involved with it. Uh, I would like to be, but that's been a cool thing to watch. Have you, I don't know if you've seen that mm-hmm. um, on Instagram and it's, it's been something that's pop- been popping Should up. about it? Yeah. It's been popping up in cities across the country just as part of like a mutual aid situation, but there is a movement to get um, a free fridge in Worcester. Free fridges are, like I said, have, are already existent in many cities and they're just like kind of larger, more industrial sized fridges. Sometimes they're just regular fridges too, but that are in a space where people can feel comfortable and have access to like, it's literally a refrigerator that just is outside that people can open and put stuff in and take stuff out of. Um, And so they are usually run by organizations. Like I said, a mutual aid organization who will clean it out when it needs to be cleaned out, who will add like add stuff to it, bring in different stuff. It's a very, very cool idea. It's, it's not cool that it's a thing that needs to even exist, but it is an awesome thing. Um, so I believe it's just like at Worcester Free Fridge, right? Yeah, and it's like free fridges are meant for sharing. They exist the community members to give and take. Yep, and I, I like think, that. I think, and good. Oh, they're looking right now for people who would volunteer to clean fridges, people who are artists and would paint fridges, solar power experts, folks with connections to food production and fundraising support, which is awesome. I think we think a lot of like, you know, food pantries and stuff, which offer, which do a great service, of course. But I think in in a food desert, the stuff that lives in a fridge, like produce, eggs, milk, just like isn't necessarily what is what is distributed or what is what people right. are able to get. And so I think that's why it's such a cool idea because, you know, I think you can go or give to a food pantry. You can give cereal or canned goods or any number of things. They want money more than anything, <laughs> to be clear. But the stuff that is in a fridge, I think, in places where there's no access or, you know, little access to affordable, accessible refrigerated products is a huge thing. So... Shout out to the Worcester Free Fridge. Totally. And I want to thank Worcester Arts Council, too. I hope this sounds better. We've been using the same <laughs> microphone since 2018, and they were getting a little rough on, I don't know. Yeah. What is it? Worse for the wear. Yeah. They were getting worse for They're the wear. rough and tumble. We traveled with them. Yeah. And so now we have a new setup that can travel and hopefully is producing a much clearer Product yes. for your eardrums. Sarah has probably noticed. I'll take a picture. I'll put it in our story or whatever. I'll put it on our feed. I'm just like, I keep, I'm having like a sensory <laughs> thing with this. Um, and she posted a picture on her personal page, but this beautiful, like acoustic sort of little enclosure that the microphone is in. It has little, like, <sighs> I would say they're, I would call them like foam teeth almost, mm-hmm. but they're very fun to play with and look at. Um, but yes, we love whack. Hashtag whack. Well, I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this was a fun puppet. It was a fun puppet. <laughs> and educational. Mm-hmm.